So it was with that information that I then sat down on Tuesday morning, and that's when I usually write my Sunday morning sermon, where I was going to do part two of our Killing the Old Man series, and I began to write it, and I just said, this isn't going to go this week. There's just no way I'm going to write this lesson, maybe next time, but not this time. And so the lesson I just simply wrote, and the title of it is, When Life Won't Give You a Break. And I thought, you know, there's a lot of people here, I think, who feel the same way about circumstances that are going on in their lives and challenges and difficulties and suffering. And so that's what I want to do as a lesson for you this morning. And so what I did on Tuesday morning is I just felt the need to open to the book of Job. And so I'd like for you to turn there with me. Job 1. Because Job is so fascinating. Because when I read the story of Job, I can't help but think, after all the things that begin to happen there, don't you suppose he said, won't life give me a break? <laughs> when am I going to be able to get a break in life from all these things that are going on? I mean, I think at some time in our life we all feel that way, that enough bad news compounds bad news and suffering compounds suffering and things happen that you begin to throw your hands up in the air and wonder, well, is it ever going to stop? And you see that here in the book of Job, as the Lord and Satan have come to this agreement there in verse 12, that Satan is able to be able to do everything that he wants to do as long as he doesn't harm Job physically. Notice in verse 13 of Job 1, One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting in the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news, your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all your shepherds. Now I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in, their older bro- in the oldest brother's home. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and all your children are dead. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And I read that and I thought, at what point do you suppose at Job's mind did he say, when am I going to get a break? (laughs) How awful to have that much news compound upon itself as uh, he loses possessions, he loses his wealth, he loses everything about job and life. He loses his hired hands and shepherds. And then, of course, the worst of all there to to find out that all of his children now have been killed in this, this horrible tragedy. And how did Job deal with that? Well, you look at verse 20 when it says there, he stood up and he tore his robe in grief. And I thought, good first step. I think there's a, for some reason, as disciples, we feel like it's not okay to grieve. It's not okay to be upset for some reason. Because we're placing our trust in God, I, I think sometimes we feel like we have to 
show this air of being impervious, that everything is going to just be okay, and uh, you know, always putting the smile on our face and thinking, you know, no matter what, I'm just going to be completely positive. And I think it's very fascinating to see Job begins right where it would be natural to begin, to be very upset, to be grieving about this. And I think that's acceptable for us as disciples of God that we can have our trust in God to have full faith in what God is doing and the events of this world and yet still be sad, still grieve, still be torn up about things that happen to us in life. There is nothing wrong with us having those feelings of being distraught, to not have the feeling of being crushed, as we see Job certainly would have had at this very moment. In fact, the very next words there, that he shaves his head. Uh, these are two events, the tearing of clothes and the shaving of the head. I, I want you to realize that those are, are public expressions of grieving. Uh, he did not crawl up into a hole into the corner of his house and, and not let anybody know that he was upset. He made sure that everybody knew that he was upset. And these were outward acts to signify that to all of his neighbors, to all of that community that he was living in, that something very tragic had happened in his life. And you would look at him and know that because he had torn his expensive clothes and was down to his, his linens and he has shaved his head and that would just symbolize that before all the people. I think that's just important to remember. That it's alright to be upset and it's alright to let people know that we're upset. It's alright to let people know that we are sad, that we're grieving, that we are going through a hard time. And that we don't have to pretend with one another that everything is okay, everything is fine, that we can lower our guard, that we can let the defenses down, and we can tell before other people we're not doing too well. There are difficulties in life. Things are challenging. And that's exactly what Job is doing here in his first thing that he responds. And then I want you to notice the rest of what he does in verse 20. He says he shaves his head and he fell to the ground in worship. That's an interesting response. And I think that's a really important response. Where else are you going to turn when you feel like life won't give you a break? Where else are you going to go? Who's going to solve all of the problems that Job has just encountered within these few moments of a total disaster taking place in his life? What can he possibly do at this moment? What can he fix? What can he change? What could anybody else do? What could anybody else say? There's nothing. All you can do is to turn to God and rely upon God. And I think that it's so nice to see that that's exactly what Job does. Job turns to the only person who can give him any comfort in these circumstances. Job turns to the only person who can soothe the pain, and that's God Himself. He is the only place that you can turn when you feel like life won't quit on you. When He's the only place that you can go to find any comfort when you feel like the waves of life continue to push you around and batter you down. And I think it is so nice to see when you look at what Job has gone through and all that he has lost and all the challenges that he's facing. He has lost his children. He has lost his whole way of life. He realizes that the only place that he can turn to is God. It's the only place to go. We do so badly sometimes when that's the last place we want to go. 
why we would want to give up on God when life won't give us a break. God's the only one who can help. God is the only one who can give us comfort. God is the only one who can deal with the situation. Nobody else could fix any of this that had happened in Job's life. Nobody else could be able to turn the tables here and make things better. There was only God who could do that. Why would we ever want to turn away from God when things are rough? And sometimes that's our reaction is when things get tough, why am I serving God? Why should I bother with all of this? And Job is impressive because in his grief and in his pain, in verse 20, he says that he's falling down to the ground in worship. And look what he says in verse 21. He says, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. And the third thing that I think you see Job do is first he grieves. Second, he worships. Third, he accepts the circumstances. He just simply, not in a bad way, resigns himself to the circumstances. I came into this world with nothing. I leave this world with nothing. I came into this world with no children, and now he had no children. He had not a dollar to his name when he was born. He didn't have a dollar to his name now. He just simply resigned himself to the circumstances and accepted the circumstances that were before him. And I think that is so important because as much as we want to believe that this life is going to fulfill every desire and promise of life, happiness, wealth, and joy, there's no promises for any of that. It's just not there. And Job understood that. That's what's so fascinating is that after this total calamity, he could say, well, I started with nothing and now I'm back to nothing. And that's the way life works. And we did a lot of that when we studied Ecclesiastes. Remember, we studied especially chapter 3, very notorious for its statement about time. There's a time for everything. That life is a roller coaster. And sometimes you're doing great. And things are rolling along really well. And sometimes you crash down to the bottom. And that's where Job is sitting at. And there is an acceptance that I will take the good with the good and I will take the bad with the bad. When things are great, I will enjoy those good times. I will accept those good times and I will appreciate those good times. But when they are bad, I must understand those times will also come. In fact, that's how he responds to his wife. If you skip ahead... In chapter 2, and in verse 10, after his wife has told him, why do you hold on to your integrity? Uh, I think modern day 21st century century translation would be, why do you still bother with God? Why do you still uphold your morality? Why do you still care to do what God wants you to do? And Job's response there in verse 10 is, you talk like a foolish woman, Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. What a great response. Can we possibly stand before God and accept only the good and then point our finger at God when bad stuff happens? And Job is just quite astute at that. You can't do that. We cannot turn and be thankful to God for all the good times and all the blessings and all the possessions as he was the richest man in all the East when this story begins and then turn around and be decimated in life and go, well, 
you know, now I'm not with God anymore. It doesn't work that way. Can we accept the good times and then leave God during the bad? Not at all. We can't do that. And I think what Job is able to do, as much as it feels quite a bit cliche, is that you try to find the good even in the bad. And I think there's, that's what acceptance is about. Is that Job, I think, has to be able to recognize that, well, God had blessed him. God made no promises that he would be wealthy all of his life. He had been blessed up to this point with immense amount of riches and wealth. And to be grateful to God and thankful to God that he had been given that up to this point. And yes, it had been taken away, but he didn't deserve to have it in the first place. To do that even with his children. There's no promises that he was supposed to have kids. To be thankful and appreciative to God that he had been given these children, and even though at this point in his life now he has lost all of his children, there are no promises that he was supposed to have children and watch them live until his dying old age. There's no promise of that. You appreciate that you have children now. You appreciate the joys that you have with them, and you don't know what the future holds. And that's what Job is able to do. And finally, there at the end of verse 21, after grieving, after worshiping God, and after accepting the circumstance, the final sentence of verse 21, praise the name of the Lord. To be thankful for all you have. To still be able to say to God, I thank you so much for all the good that you've done. I thank you so much for all the blessings you've given me. And Job is able to do that. I would like to share with you that I think Jesus does the exact same thing. Go over to Matthew chapter 26. And I think you'll find these same four steps with him in one of Jesus' most difficult hours. Matthew chapter 26. And we have seen in chapter 26, Jesus has understood and explained that it is his time for his betrayal. He has explained to them that he is about to be arrested and that the disciples are going to forsake him and that they're going to leave. And they are now on their way to Gethsemane. They are on their way to the olive trees there in the garden. And notice in verse 36, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Verse 38, He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Begin by noticing, and I think I've missed this before, how difficult this really was in terms of the grief that he's experiencing. Uh, One of the translations in trying to grasp this Greek word in verse 38 says he was crushed with grief. Another one says he was swallowed up in grief. Uh, Trying to communicate the thrust of the, the gravity of the situation that Jesus is not just kind of mildly upset about the things that are about to happen, that he's describing himself as being crushed, very sorrowful, swallowed up, even to death here. And so he is now pleading with these three disciples, 
stay awake. Watch with me as I go over here and pray. Verse 39, And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And I think it is interesting to see that we saw with Job, after grieving he worshipped, with grieving Jesus is praying. The same thing. He's turning to God. He's immediately going to God, and he begins to discuss the situation with God and praying this, if this cup passed from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 40, and he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I think you see... In the the praying that Jesus does acceptance, just as Job came to acceptance, is that, Lord, it's your will that's going to be done. I have put all things into your hands. Here is my request, but I understand that you are the one in charge. And one of the things that I think is easy to miss as 21st century American Christians is that God's primary priority is not our comfort. And unfortunately, I think that's what we want God's primary priority to be, is to make me happy. And that's just not on number one on God's job list. God does not exist to make me happy on this earth. And yet that's really what religion has tried to turn into, is it's just going to make you happy. It's going to make you wealthy. It's going to make you feel good. Come to God. Your life is going to be all better. Everything will be roses. It'll be wonderful, friends. That is not God's primary priority. And you see that here with Jesus, is that it's not about what Jesus wants. It's about what God's will and purpose is. That's really all that matters in this world. And it doesn't matter how good or bad or how painful or joyful my physical life is. That's not important. What is important is God's purpose, God's plan, and the fulfillment of those things and what I can do in trying to bring Him glory in the process. It's just not about me being happy. And we get upset about that. When things go wrong, we get upset because things are not going the way that we want to. And we think it should be God's ultimate purpose and the reason that he exists is to make me happy. But that's not it. And if even Jesus himself can come to the earth, God in the flesh can express the very point that it's not about his will, then it's certainly not about mine. It's all about God's. 
God's will is going to be done. His purposes must be accomplished. And whatever challenges we face in life, we have to continue praising God and revealing God's glory in everything that we do. And is that not exactly the the great part of what we see Job doing? In total loss and in total agony, he doesn't say anything sinful. He doesn't put the blame on God. He doesn't cast God with wrong in the beginning. He just simply says, blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's what we see Jesus doing as well. And you might say, now we don't see what Job did at the end. We see Job praising God. We don't see it at the end, but we actually see it in the beginning. If you back up to verse 30 of chapter 26, as Jesus knows he's about to be betrayed, what are he and the disciples doing on their way to Gethsemane? Singing praises to God. They're singing psalms. Friends, how do you do that with full knowledge of what's about to happen in just a matter of hours? It's bad enough when you get blindsided by things in life. How do you do it when you know full well it's going to be misery? Jesus did. He knew full well that in just a couple hours, his closest companions would leave him, forsake him, and run trying to save their own skin. He knew full well that one of his closest companions was going to betray him with a kiss and turn him over to the authorities. He knew that within 12 hours he would be dead. And he's singing on the way to Gethsemane. That's putting your trust in God. That shows praising God no matter what happens. And it is a scene like this that I think gives veracity to the words of the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14 where the writer of Hebrews tells us, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We do not have a high priest who does not understand That is a powerful thing. We do not talk to somebody who does not understand. He has gone through the similar circumstances. He's gone through the suffering. He's gone through the pain. He's gone through the weeping. He's gone through that grieving. He's been crushed with sorrow. He knows that feeling. And that's the picture that is being given here. He says, He is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. He's not unable to relate. Does that always make it hard when you're trying to talk to somebody and you know they don't understand what you're going through and you're going through a great amount of pain and suffering and you can't communicate that at all. There's no way to express it. And you feel a little bit disjointed at that because you know it's just not any way to be able to help somebody understand what you're feeling. Jesus knows. There may not be anybody else who understands what you're going through, but Jesus knows. 
he's not unable to sympathize. He knows exactly what you are enduring. He endured so much. And look at how he was able to respond. And that's why verse 14 of Hebrews 4 could say, let us hold fast to our confession. Don't give up. Do not let go of God when life won't give you a break. Do not cast God aside when those challenges come. In fact, verse 16, he says, he asks us, he commands us, go before the throne of God with confidence. The all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe, the only one who can do anything in this world is We sit here and are unable to take care of the problems of life, unable to fix our circumstances, nothing we can say or do, are now being told that we can walk with confidence, with boldness, into the very throne room of God and ask Him for anything that we need. That we can walk before the throne room of God and it says there that we can ask Him, we can have the confidence to draw near to that throne and find grace and help to find the mercy of God to be poured out there. To come before the throne room of God and find God taking care of you and helping you get through. A powerful picture. And there's one other place I'd like to turn us in James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Because not only does Jesus understand, but the writer of James tells us that there have been many who have gone on before us who have endured great amount of suffering. And they were also able to hold on. James chapter 5 and verse 10. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. If you could just stop right there and just... For a moment, reel your mind through what all the prophets had to endure. (laughs) For a great example of suffering, James says, think about the prophets. And you don't have to hardly start with Elijah before you go through and remember the suffering that Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. You have so many. In fact, Stephen would make the argument, name one prophet that wasn't persecuted. They all suffered. Verse 11, We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. Perhaps one of the best parts of the book of Job that we can't neglect as powerful as those first two chapters are is that we come to the end of the book of Job and you read about what God does for Job in in chapter 42. God had not left Job. God had not forsaken him. God had not left him aside and said, well, you know, it's just all on your own through all this. In the end, we see the kindness and tenderness, the mercies of God being presented. Which ties into the point that I think he's getting at there is in verse 13. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. When going through difficulties, James says, pray. Others have gone through suffering. 
Others have gone through similar circumstances. And maybe I'm the only one, but I doubt it. All of us, for a time, feel like we're the only one going through what we're going through. We always feel like that. Nobody else understands what we're going through. Nobody else has been through the circumstances that we've been through. And Jesus reminds us that's not true. And James now reminds us that's not true. There have been many others who have gone through difficulties in the past, and they held on to their faith, they held on to their confidence, and they were pronounced righteous in the end. And here is James, he says, look at Job, look at what he went through, look at the man of faith and endurance that he was, and understand what you can do when in your roller coaster of life are you suffering hardship, pray to God, turn to God, He is where the answers will be found. He is the place where you will find comfort. You're not going to find it anywhere else. It's the only place that we can turn. And so I leave you with those four things. I couldn't come up with any acronym to make it memorizable. (laughs) Oh, well. You grieve. You worship and pray. You accept your circumstances. And you praise God.